When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10. That's podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to the top analysis of today's markets. When will the Fed recognize that this is not a soft landing? Welcome to the extended Real Vision Daily Briefing. My name is Andreas Steno and I wish you a happy Friday. I hope that you will decide to spend the next 60 minutes in great company here on the channel as we unpack all of the central bank and market action for you together with my guest, George Gonsalves, the uh, head of US macro strategy of MUFG Securities. George, it's a pleasure to host you at Real Vision. Good to see you. Thanks for having me on and thanks for pronouncing everything the right way. Many people <laughs> don't know how to pronounce it. You're, you're, you're a true European, that's for sure. <laughs> and I know my Spanish. Uh, yeah. I guess that's why. Um, the first 30 minutes, we'll spend um, some time on unpacking your framework around central banks, George, uh, while we will uh, take sort of a global tour around uh, fixed income markets once we move to the uh, Real Vision platform after the first 30 minutes. Uh, you can use the QR code, by the way, if you want to follow us uh, to Real Vision after the first 30 minutes. Um, so make sure to have all of your questions ready. We will try to answer as many as possible in the second half of the show. But um, George, I, I want to spend some time here initially on um, assessing your framework around central banks um, in light of this inflationary environment that we're amidst. Um, and I want to use some examples from just the past week here to set the scene. One of the first things I've uh, noted over the course of today is, of course, the um, news out of Japan. Um, suddenly a new headline with a new governor allegedly uh, being in place for Bank of Japan from April and onwards, as far as I'm concerned. Earlier this week, we had another rumor of um, the governor, deputy governor Amamiya taking over, but then suddenly the prime minister told us that it was a trial balloon that he was nominated uh, in the press. So what do you make of today's announcement, quote unquote? Is it another trial balloon? Do we know it all? No, I mean, look, we don't know. We'll find out more in the coming days. I mean, I think uh, there's uh, uh, some idea that perhaps next week, the 14th, we'll get an official announcement. Uh, I think there was some also some news headlines discussing that Amiya-san uh, potentially rejected the offer. We don't can't confirm or, or deny that. But either way, uh, it, it was definitely a shock earlier on in the, mo in the morning um, during London, uh, uh, late Tokyo, London hours and into the U.S., a uh, big move in the end, uh, and, and you know, I think that, uh, as you know, and if you look at just like a the very typical uh, dove hawk charts of uh, of, uh, of Japan uh, central bankers, <laughs> they're usually on the dovish side. So it's it's really about degrees of freedom between dovishness, and so when someone's neutral, 
as potentially the Udison would be, uh, that feels like hawkish, right? And, and, and the fact that you know, markets have to go back, you know, he's not a relatively known commodity. He was on the board many years ago. And, and at that time, he was a little bit more hawkish, but that was, you know, given the circumstances of the environment back then. Uh, he's a professor. Um, and so there's not much known about, uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, perhaps this is an opportunity for you know, Japan to start to pivot away too from ultra accommodative policy. Mm. Indeed it is. Um, but George, I want your take on whether it is common to sort of use these trial balloons in the press ahead of major nominations uh, in central banks. Could something similar happen in the US uh, once there are nominations for key roles? Yeah, there, I would say so. I mean, even like back then, even back during the last few uh, uh, searches for the chair uh, for the Fed, we had you know, kind of just a, a very small select list of individuals that would be uh, in the news. So I think this is not nothing terribly unusual. Uh, I think it's you know, it's really an attempt to find the right person. Uh, but at the same time, though, I mean, either one would have been or we'll see who ends up ultimately being nominated. But this is really about understanding how to unpackage so many years of of just accommodative policy and and, and very specific uh, facilities that were established. So you know, having someone like Amina san you know, would have been uh, equally as important, even if he's viewed to be a little bit more dovish and would have perhaps uh, adhere more towards the old Kuroda doctrine. Perhaps we don't know, but at least he would be able to like know where how all the plumbing works because there's been so much put in place around all this easy money uh, and facilities. And so, again, not to say that the new person won't either. I don't, I don't, we don't expect a like rip the Band-Aid moment where they just completely abandon YCC. You know, as things are very typical in Japan, it's very methodical. There'll be a, a, you know, a lot of consensus building around it. And I'm sure that whoever ends up being there, they know that YCC's uh, expiration date is coming and they're going to have to change it. And uh, we even have inflation in Japan now. Um, world is upside down, George. Uh, and I want to talk to you about inflation in the context of central bank uh, reaction functions. Yeah. Um, let's start with the Federal Reserve and how to view the inflation mandate uh, within the Fed, because we've had a lot of discussions over the past couple of quarters on sort of the true target variable for inflation. Uh, Powell started talking about uh, services ex-housing recently. So what do you make of that discussion? What is the true target variable on inflation uh, in the U.S. right now? Well, look, I, I would say um, because of the nature of how inflation evolved post-pandemic, they had to zoom in on a, a smaller, narrow, narrower set to try to at least isolate um, some of the noise around things. Uh, but at the same time, though, you have to you have to kind of start to question all of this disflation, this you know, disinflation, disinflation, disinflation. I mean, like repeating that too many times, you know, gets the markets to kind of focus on that word, and, and it almost gives us like air that we've now uh, beaten inflation, and that's that's dangerous in my opinion, and that's primarily in the goods sector, right? So the goods sector had uh, you know, a disproportionately large move relative to trend up like 11, 12% at the peak post-pandemic. And it's coming back down to earth and it's probably got a lot more to go. I mean, we lived in a disinflationary world, as you know, uh, and I know, you know, pre-COVID-19 uh, when it came to actual physical goods, things got cheaper and cheaper over time. Uh, and we had just excess capacity. Now, it might be different going forward, considering, you know, the, the 
putting on uh, changing the global globalization and supply chains that, that that all adds frictions back into the picture. I mean, I'm much more open minded now around the idea that the you know structural in disinflationary periods um, you know, probably are not completely gone because we do have automation and technology much more so than we had in you know the prior you know in great inflation of the 1970s. But nonetheless, I mean, I'm, I'm open minded to the idea that these these frictions may linger. They might reflare every so often, and that will you know, change the the central bank's reaction function on a go forward basis. And and you know, having lived through uh, two thirds of the bond market's bull run of for 40 years, you know, being in the markets for 25 years. I mean, it's it's almost like against my grain of thinking. I'm like, wait, that doesn't make sense. Like, we're gonna we actually think rates can go up again from here. Like, so I, I think that or stay stay elevated at least at a minimum. Um, but I do think there is a lot more two way risk here, and and maybe rates will stay higher, but at a, in a range, but not necessarily go to eight ten percent. But you know, stay at a higher range to discount for the inflation uncertainty that's going to linger. Mm. If we look a bit ahead on uh, inflation, George, uh, you mentioned goods disinflation as a theme for the upcoming uh, quarter or two uh, relative to this more sticky inflation that we see in the service basket X housing. Let's assume that we get this, this disinflation in goods and service inflation will remain sticky. What do you make of that cocktail in the context of Fed's reaction function? Yeah, that, I mean that that really puts them in a, in a tough situation. Um, I think at that point, then the um, the trigger to change policy in either direction will come down to growth, and 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 so if we're seeing sticky inflation and disinflation from one segment of the economy, but we're seeing growth um, hang in there, then I, I, the Fed really doesn't do anything. I mean, to be honest, that's kind of what. The markets are now starting to price too. I mean, the rates markets have been skeptical and still remain skeptical given how deeply inverted some parts of the curve still remain, even after this you know, sell-off that we had in the last you know, couple of weeks, especially this week, especially. Uh, but I, I do think that um, you, uh, you end up with a situation where we, we get to an environment where growth will, will drive that decision. The the worst case scenario, which you, I think you I would agree, and I'm curious what you think as well. Like the worst case scenario is that the goods disinflation that we're banking on, which although carries a, a weight of 25%, but if it gets very close to zero, even maybe negative, right? Um, then what like what overcomes it? Like what if you get a situation where, you know, let's say the China reopening is really going really well. We can discuss that separately, but just making that assumption. Like the second half of the year could end up with a stagflationary environment where you get a, a, a whiff of energy inflation and commodity inflation. The goods deflation is not enough or disinflation is not enough and wages are still sticky, but yet growth is decelerating. That's like stagflation light. Then central banks can't ease and like markets will not like that. I mean, markets are really hoping that, you know, that we get enough weakness or inflation goes low enough that the central banks decide to unwind some of this uh, tightness. Like the worst case scenario really is a stagflation environment in, in the second half. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of today's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. 
Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. And we even see a few components of the goods basket now increasing in price again, um, which may be an early hint of that scenario that you just uh, painted for us, George. So it will indeed be interesting to watch this cocktail uh, of inflation versus disinflation across the basket over the next couple of months. Uh, we obviously have the next report coming out uh, mid next week. Uh, so we will get more uh, information already soon on US inflation. In relation to energy prices, you, you briefly mentioned energy prices as a sort of a dark horse in this equation as well. In Europe, uh, where I live, it it's actually seems as if the European Central Bank started caring about energy prices. They were simply forced to care about them throughout the autumn due to this material spike that we saw in natural gas, for example, in Europe. Do you think the Fed cares about the price at the pump in its reaction function by now, or is it more a question of wages and, and service inflation? So if you recall back, and I'm sure you do, in June of 2008, when Bernanke also like got a little bit nervous about oil going to 140 back in that environment right before the financial crisis, and I'm not saying that that's going to happen again, but my point is that even back then, they let their guard down and they got nervous about like, energy inflation has the risk of really spilling into the economy quickly if oil were to stay at 140. Of course, it went down to 30, and if the rest is history. And so you never really had that pass-through of inf higher inflation uh, from that, you know, that knee-jerk reaction. I guess it depends on how fast and 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 what and if it's if it's uh, remains elevated. If we get a situation where because of refining capacity issues that still remain, by the way, if we have a, uh, let's say that I'm much more bearish on the outlook for the economy, but let's say we don't get a recession or a weak uh, environment, and then you have a, a, a another kind of leg higher in activity, then U.S. will start to consume more energy. I mean, this is naturally the way it goes. Then you have the summer period, and then you have China also on top of that. And Europe at some point, although they were spared this year with winter, you know, next year winter is coming again. It happens every year. And we don't know the outcome of that. And it's going to be at a time where Europe is going to be competing with LNG with China. I mean, it could literally really create a really big inflationary environment. And I think that at that point, I think the Fed would care. If it's, if it's not just isolated, if it's broad and if it's persistent, I think they would care. Mm. Uh, one thing that uh, is noteworthy in this discussion on, on energy is the base effects that we measure energy against in February and March, not least due to the invasion spike that we saw in energy prices just after Putin uh, rolled into Ukraine. So it will be very difficult for energy to sort of beat last year's effects yes. over the next couple of months. But into the second half of the year, it is clearly a dark horse for the inflation outlook. Um, and uh, we obviously got news today uh, out of Russia. Um, news that they plan on retaliating against these Western sanctions on, on oil by limiting the supply as of March by, I think it was half a million barrels a day. So negative supply news and um, who knows whether energy will turn up as the inflationary dark holes again in the second half of the year. George, in relation to... Um, to this discussion on inflation and the reaction function from central banks, I'd like your take on whether we can trust the curvature of the yield curve right now as a predictor of the economic growth ahead. Um, it's been an ongoing discussion since QE started, whether QE sort of manipulated the signal um, in the yield curve. What do you make of that discussion? Can we actually trust this current inversion to be a recession signal? I still think we can. 
especially because every basically the whole term structure in one shape or another is inverted. So just the preponderance of almost every single relationship, depending on whatever pair of tenors you pick, they're basically all upside down and really just um, yeah, a real demand for duration, perhaps. You know, there's really a demand for duration for actual you know, either regulatory reasons per, and maybe that's skewing the information ratio and the value of what the signal tells us. But the fact that the whole curve is inverted, uh, I still believe has some predictive power. I mean, what might end up being different this time is that because uh, it might just take longer. I mean, we, there's no guarantee that it's going to be 12 months, 18 months. Is it six months, right? I mean, in the past, the average somewhere around like the more towards the end of that period but because of all the you know, lingering liquidity, fiscal stimulus, people still burning down cash, um, it might just take longer for the recession to show up. But if, but as long as we have an inverted curve all throughout this period, uh, if it disinverts, then we can say, hey, look, that was a false positive. If the curve disinverts, but to disinvert this curve, especially with the back end, I mean, look, you, you can go back to uh, the 2004, 2006 hiking cycle, right? The, the Fed also got rates up to five and a quarter. And right when they got to five and a quarter for 14 months, they were on hold. I mean, that's a long hold period. And but the 10-year and the two-year didn't believe them. Like literally, <laughs> they all like even back then, even before the financial crisis, even before all of this, like even back then, people were saying, "Oh, the curve is wrong. The curve is wrong. The curve is wrong. What does the curve know?" And the curve just knew that there was some lingering concern about just the the nature of the financial architecture. Uh, and the curve now is is looking up and and, and is concerned about both you know, central banks' reaction functions. Are they going too far? You know, is there going to be fiscal support when you really need it? You know, the you know, the the catalyst may have changed, but at the end of the day, I still think that the the bond market is. I, I've said it, and others have said it as well. Is probably the best economist on the street, right? I mean, I think that they, <laughs> except for last year. I mean, last year obviously we got it wrong, or at least the the, the collective bond market didn't really see how aggressive central banks were going to be. But once we get to these elevated levels around four to five percent, I think that it becomes a, a a tug of war between the bond market and central banks. Because then, like, yeah, they can push it to eight percent if they want, but they they know they're going to break something. So we know that they know that. But when it when it comes to this kind of like a level of rates, I think um, you know, I think there's uh, enough uh, merit to believe that the bond market is telling you something. It's not to say that, that I don't think rates can go higher. I actually do think there is one potential last move higher in rates, and it might end up being a great buying opportunity. I wouldn't chase rallies yet because we don't know if the Fed's done and QT is still working in the background. But you know, by and large, I think the signal is still valid. Mm. If, if we assess whether the Federal Reserve members will care about this curve of inversion. What do you make of that discussion? I mean, it seems as if Powell is just moving the needle on this uh, curve inversion debate all the time. Uh, you know, look, we can talk about uh, just latest Fed uh, sentiment or Fed speeches and how they've been conveying things. And I'm actually really looking forward to the uh, February 22nd Fed minutes because mm. it feels like there's some tension and you can tell by the way that Chair Powell is trying to act super neutral, but deep down inside, I don't think he is neutral. I think he realizes he has a, a mission to complete and, and if it requires insurance tightening and it might tip us into some sort of recession, I think deep down inside, I think they'll tolerate that because they, they know they can cut rates really fast. 
if they need to, if it's a really deeper recession and, and if inflation were to be uh, under control. I think there's a little bit of tension and, and maybe at the committee level, we're going to hear more, perhaps not like a full-blown dissension. That can also happen, by the way, down the road, right? But but for now, it does feel like there's some tension around maybe you know the doves, which turned into hawks over the course of the last year. Uh, perhaps they're getting nervous about the outlook. But a lot of this also, by the way, happened before that monster NFP, which again is debatable. How strong is it really? But you know, deep, overall, the employment picture is good enough for the Fed not to be squeamish or and to be um, fearful. And they actually should be pressing into this because the risk is they get it wrong and they have to re-accelerate hikes, right? The last thing they want to do is get to 5% and then they realize and they're on hold for six months and they're like, oh no, we got to go another 100. Like that would just be the hardest thing to pull off, uh, right? I mean, like I don't think they want to do that, right? So they they probably just stay on hold even longer and try to tweak QT and and not not uh, you know redo another tightening cycle. So I think you're going to hear some dissensions, um, and I think that you know, like what the yield curve. I mean, I think that are they ignoring the yield curve? Are they just hoping for the best? Uh, I, I think there's probably some of that, right? I mean, they they've ignored the yield curve every single time, and now. Even their own version of the yield curve, that 18-month, three-month, three-month rate spread, also has the same characteristics. And so if none of these signals matter, then why do we look at them? Yeah. Um, by the way, George, what on earth happened to Neil Kaskari over the past couple of years? I mean, he went from being almost Bank of Japan-like in his rhetoric to, to now being the most hawkish member of the board, more or less. Uh, that's just one example of that tension. Yeah, it is interesting, right? I mean, so uh, look, uh, I think like deep down inside, um, like just kind of understanding and reading a lot of the papers that Neil has, I mean, he's definitely like focused on the general population. And if like if people are, are, are people getting hurt with higher inflation? I mean, I think he's, he's viewing it from more that angle that let's get this resolved. I don't think like once it's fixed and then we actually have proof that inflation is sitting around 2%, I think Neil goes back to a dub very quickly. Yeah, fair point. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of today's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. One thing that uh, we haven't touched a whole lot upon yet is the um, outlook for liquidity and how uh, we actually measure liquidity in this QE era. Uh, and I know that you are completely on top of these uh, trends in, in dollar markets, George. So first of all, what's your definition of say, excess liquidity in the banking system, and how do we actually track it? So, I mean, look, you can think about it um, simply, and those that have looked at the Fed balance sheet, uh, there's only so many different categories, right? I mean, currency and circulation is going to be doing its own thing, and it's basically on cruise control based on the demand for actual money. Uh, and then there's reserve balances, the Treasury general account, and the reverse repo program, right? So those are the three big buckets. And those buckets all have to uh, tee up and, and, and tie up to, to you know, match the other side, which is the asset side, right? So the liability of the Fed's balance sheet is really the big liquidity, right? 
However, there is non-bank, you know, the shadow bank system liquidity, which is also out there. And that's the repo market. That's you know the need for collateral. Um, that is uh, you know just you know marginal lending and just you know activity. That's a lot of it not going through the banking system, so you, you can't even see it, right? So I think the combination of the pure bank, uh, which ties back to the monetary base with the Fed's balance sheet, and then you have this non-bank liquidity which is also super important too. And it's becoming, I mean, it, look, it, it's not the same sort of um, market like it was pre-2008, but it's, it's it's still pretty big. I mean, and it's it's been growing uh, and uh, it's different uh, providers of, of liquidity and uh, they're not under the purview of the Fed. But just like, I do think that, you know, that could be like a whole other topic that we can spend mm. you know, many, many uh, hours going through. But just like when I look at it at the surface to see where there's spillover into the public markets and the financial markets, I truly do care about the interplay between the Treasury's general account, the reverse repo, and the reserves. Mm. And, and, and right now, the Fed has an, you know, the double tightening of not only just raising rates and, and targeting, targeting the price of money, they're also targeting the quantity of money. And that matters, right? Mm. So if... You know, we we have QT. QT is slowly, you know, chipping away at the balance sheet, taking it down in size. But then you have the ebbs and flows of what happens with money market funds, with their usage of the RRP, and then the Treasury general account, which, as I know you know, and you guys are, I'm sure, aware of what's happening with the debt ceiling and the need to operate within a certain limit, it could create um, you know, some pretty big splashes in liquidity as money leaves from one bucket to the other bucket, and since money is fungible and it could be used for posting of collateral, for derivative trades, for uh, and also just people can choose to asset allocate into different assets, and it's always that marginal dollar that could you know, change the price of something. So if you're buying a bond at 100 uh, and then you sell to somebody else for 105, you, you, you've created $5 of money, uh, and, like, and that will then restock the whole bond market by 5%. So lift the whole thing up and then you've technically created uh, additional liquidity and money. So I do think that um, this, uh, what's happening now with the reserve balances is very fascinating, especially as we head into this, uh, you know, the deadline for the debt ceiling and how that's going to impact flow. Uh, and I think it's, I think it's already been having an influence, quite frankly. And, uh, and I, I'm both curious about going into the debt ceiling and then coming out because I think people sometimes forget about this. They ignore it because we've spent so much time overanalyzing the debt ceiling that it's really the liquidity part that matters, not necessarily the, the credit risk. Mm. Uh, and uh, I want to unpack all of the details uh, around these various buckets of liquidity in the second half of the show on the Real Vision platform in just five, six minutes from now. But the final question I have for you on uh, liquidity here in the first half of the show, George, is whether it is trickier for a central bank like the Fed to control risk sentiment given these excesses in liquidity happening from time to time due to liquidity spilling over from one bucket to another? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that it could be why it's they've been having a hard time answering financial conditions are easing mm -hmm. or not easing, because at one moment it could be a lot of easing and then they can <laughs> tighten up very quickly and it's out of their control. 
um, as much as they don't want to admit it. So I, I, I think um, I think it, it is uh, it is a challenge. Uh, I don't think it stops them from doing the traditional hiking of rates because that's what they've kind of they really have moved towards. We really care about using our main lever, which is the rate channel, and that's the part that we it's easier to communicate to the public. What are what are we doing with rates? The whole balance sheet is a is a mystery, and and they've sometimes themselves have admitted we don't really know how it fully works through the banking system. So I mean I don't know if I believe that completely, but I do think that you know it is there is a lot of unintended consequences, which makes it challenging for them to you know, understand where we are at a given point. But yeah, but we can talk more about like what this means in a higher rate environment because my 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 real contention and concern about this is that. When we've had these uh, mini flare-ups in the past, it's when rates were at zero. So the opportunity cost was very low. Now yeah. when you have rates really high, you know, the margin for error is not the same. Mm. Absolutely fair point, George. Um, one thing that we actually haven't touched upon yet is the unemployment rate. Um, and we asked the question initially, when will the Fed actually recognize that this is not a soft landing? And I guess that could be linked to the labor market, that uh, question. I want to play a soundbite for you from a discussion between uh, Roger Hurst and uh, Damian Horner um, from Real Vision uh, platform just earlier this week on this exact question on when will the labor market actually deteriorate. So uh, let's listen to Roger and get back to that discussion. What's been really interesting is that we've seen what was very much a consensus of 2023 being it's going to be a recession and probably either a deep recession yeah. or at best, you know, a common or garden mild recession, but with a lot of downside. That narrative has clearly shifted away from the deep recession towards mild recession or even no recession. And there's a lot of people now moving into that no recession camp. And is this is this a global thing or is this just the States or? It's a global thing. Right. And it's a global thing. And it's probably because we have seen one or two parts of a normal recession that had just not happened yet. Right. And most particularly that's the employment scenario or employment situation, which is notoriously hard. And this is why it's such a, a difficult thing because Unemployment or employment is lagging, it's prone to revisions. And normally when you get the sort of levels of unemployment that say that's recession, you're normally looking in the back rear view mirror. It's normally yeah, it's sort of data happened. from 12 months ago yeah. that you're only getting yeah. you know, 12 months down the line. But one thing that we can say with, with certain certainty is that in the US since the 1940s, every single recession has come with significantly higher unemployment. Yeah. And yet as we talk right now on the 6th of February, the unemployment rate in the US, which is a slightly dubious one compared to other countries because of the way the numbers are worked out, but it has fallen to 3.4%. It's some of one of the tightest in about 50 years. The entire discussion between Roger Hurst and Damien Horner is already available at the Real Vision platform for our Plus subscribers. George, um, the labor market is sort of the missing link in this recession talk. Do you see any signs of weakening out there? Uh, under the surface, there is some weakness, right? I mean, we can rattle off a whole list of things, but people are going to ignore it because they saw the 517,000 NFP <laughs> and they saw the 3.4 unemployment. And, and, and what we have to remind everyone is it's usually the best before, you know, it gets worse. I mean, that, that's the unfortunate true nature of the sort of economies that we live in. That unemployment rate at the lows means that there's only one, one way to go is up if we ever do go into a recession. The idea that we stay at lows for long periods of time usually doesn't typically happen. Look at you know temp workers you know coming getting uh, no longer 
uh, you know, reassigned. If you look at you know, the nature of the job mix, a lot of it's low paying jobs versus high paying jobs, part time jobs. We've had very little full time employment increases in the last couple of uh, of months. And so I think we're seeing um, a unfair representation of like how strong the jobs market really is. And it's really happening at the blue collar, lower, you know, income type job levels, which you know, those people are coming back to work after being uh, offline. A lot of them due to, due to COVID. I don't think that's really where the problem is. I think it's it's really, as some have called it, the white collar recession that eventually becomes a blue collar recession or a lower income job recession because when people start cutting back spending, they're going to cut back services as well. Mm. This was the first half of the Real Vision daily briefing. In the second half of the show, we will move the discussion to realvision.com. So it's just for Real Vision members. Um, if you don't want to miss it, you can use the link in the description to join us on Real Vision in just a few seconds where we will elaborate on liquidity trends and when the Fed will actually acknowledge that this is not a soft landing. So please join us on realvision.com if you want to get all the details around the liquidity outlook and the ramifications for global markets. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.